Now, uh, let's see how that old one go. On the tiniest holiday, boy, holiday, boy. Hmm. Huh, who's that? Oh, hello, neighbour. I'm the massively beloved modern pop star from just up the way. I was passing by and I couldn't help but overhear the most beautiful music. Oh, no one wants to hear from an old fuddy-duddy like me. Oh, not at all. See, I love these classic songs. And I bet if the two of us put our heads together, we could adapt and reuse these old tunes for everyone to enjoy. Well, it sounds like a bunch of malarkey, but uh, I'm willing to give it an old college try. Shall I start? I wish you would. Hmm. I'm the littlest holiday boy, holiday boy. Singing songs of love and joy, holiday boy. I'm the winter monster, hiding in a tree. Singing songs Making of love mince pies and joy, for holiday, holiday tea. That's it. Hmm. Well, what do you know? That's uh, not half bad. Sometimes you just have to adapt something old and breathe new life into it so people can keep using it for years to come. Adapt and reuse, eh? And there's many things you can adapt and reuse, like materials, buildings, why, even landscapes. Landscapes? I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. Fantastic! So why don't we start the show? Okay. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from the cloakroom of the factory in London, Ontario, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. We have a live episode for you, a panel I was happy to moderate for the Ontario Heritage Trust. The Heritage Matters in Conversation event in London, Ontario, was a series of discussions on rethinking heritage value, looking forward to opportunities for renewal and revitalization. The Trust believes that heritage provides the people of Ontario with touchstones to the past, and opportunities to enjoy and appreciate it. The talk you're about to hear features a diversity of perspectives and gets to the heart of the distinct and diverse approaches to assessing heritage value in our communities. Stand by. First of all, let me reintroduce myself. My name is Glenn Bowerman. I am the host of Spacing Radio, uh, Spacing Magazine's podcast. If you're not familiar with a podcast, think of it as an adaptive reuse of radio. Um, So I'm going to start by introducing our guests. Uh, We'll begin with Alyssa Golden. Alyssa Golden is a Heritage Project Specialist with the City of Hamilton. She is responsible for coordinating the city's proactive built heritage inventory work with experience managing and conserving cultural heritage resources in the public and private realms, Alyssa has had a hand in broad range of initiatives from inventory and evaluation to the development of heritage policy. Steve Cordes uh, joined Youth Opportunities Unlimited, or U, as its executive director in 1988, retitled in 2019. And under his leadership, U has grown into an internationally recognized and award-winning agency. Steve is a sought-after speaker who shares his passion, insights, and experiences in the areas of community engagement, social enterprise, and youth services. Steve holds a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology from Western University. He is a recipient of two Paul Harris Fellowships from Rotary International and had held positions at Fanshawe College and Pathways Skills Development. Steve is a former Rotarian and member of numerous community task groups. He has served on the boards of several nonprofit organizations and provincial associations. Give it up for Steve. <laughs> Morag Kluza moved to Owen Sound at age two uh, when the CPR train was still running, and although no longer carrying passengers, 
She loved putting pennies on the tracks that ran in front of the old farmhouse that was home and was delighted in receiving flattened versions minutes later. I don't think the CPR recommends doing that. Uh, But in any case, fast forward 24 years to doors open and a tour through the old abandoned CPR station. Morag saw a vision, a brew pub in the harbor of Owen Sound, inside a train station. Morag had the education and experience to carry out this vision with a Bachelor of Engineering, Physics from McMaster University, and a diploma from Niagara College in Brewmaster and Brewery Management Program. The experience of working at Newstadt Brewery as a student and the successful launch of the Tobermory Brewing Company in 2015. Working for two years to plan and renovate the derelict station, Mudtown Station Brewery and Restaurant opened in May 2018. Give it up for Morag. And Doran Ritchie is a member of the Bear Clan and a member of the Saugeen First Nation. He follows traditional teaching and has been educated in Western science. Uh, he started his career in 2005 working for the federal and provincial governments. During the past nine years, he's been working for the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation as manager of resources and infrastructure, uh, whose mission is to provide expertise for cultural environmental matters that affect the interests of the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation. And their job is to assist the Joint Chiefs of Councils of the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation in asserting jurisdiction over the environment in the traditional territory. So give it up for Dorn. I wanted to get the ball rolling uh, by sort of breaking down individually what heritage means to everyone because heritage is kind of a murky concept uh, it can be a lot of things uh, oftentimes we talk about physical buildings like this one uh, but uh, you know the, the definition isn't just restricted to buildings so uh, I want to go down the line and just ask you guys what heritage means to you and uh, you know how do you practice conservation in your professional lives and uh, how do you connect places and their stories and and uh, that sort of thing so I'll start with you Dorn. Yeah, that's a very interesting question in, in my line of work. <clears throat> heritage means uh, every, everything else other than bridges and old buildings. Uh, it's the things that you actually can't see. It's, it's in the ground, um, and that connects our culture and our heritage values to the land. And that brings me from the past to the present and then allows me to look to the future. Uh, I'm going to be mentioning later on uh, a project that we're working on um, to build a lot of natural heritage value. It's a very special place in the Saugeen First Nation community. It's known as the Saugeen Amphitheater. But a bit later, there's a lot of heritage value there that we can't see. Um, But interestingly enough, we're using a European technique um, to really showcase kind of a very prominent structure and something that is going to last for, for generations and generations to come. So in, in, in a nutshell, you know, heritage value, actually working for a Saugeen Ojibwe Nation, I've been taught what heritage value means to non-Indigenous people. It is, it's places like this, you know, this, this factory. It's things like old bridges, which to me, I never actually considered as a heritage value. To me, it was just strictly infrastructure. Um, but that ties, you know, another story to another people. And quite literally, our heritage is the things that you can't see and the things that are, that are passed down. And again, that's uh, what I guess heritage means to me. It's, just, it's kind of a concept of oral history, and that's how our, our people have lived, and that's how we understand things. So, I'll pass it to uh, Morag now. Um, for me, heritage started with, um, as the write-up said, the history of my experience in Owen Sound, growing up on the railway tracks, and then experiencing the abandoned CP station, looking at it and deciding, okay, that should be something, and it could be something. Um, somebody should do something. And then eventually, for some reason, deciding I should do that myself. Owen Sound has a fascinating history, and I think part of what we tried to do with the station is not just preserve the building, but we're trying to highlight 
Oh, and sounds history as well. Um, it was the last dry city in Canada. So pulling all of that into the heritage of the building. All of those experiences, I think, are what heritage means to me and all of the history involved in it as well. And Steve? Uh, to me, heritage uh, helps define how we connect with our community. It actually grounds the community. So uh, at YOU, through YOU, uh, we've redeveloped uh, three historical properties now uh, in downtown London. Why would a youth not-for-profit organization um, care about heritage? We're looking at helping young people find jobs and so on. Um, well, I'll tell you why. Uh, because for us, that heritage does represent a connection to community. So for most people in our community who will never walk into a door at Youth Opportunities Unlimited, they can interact with a building and a structure that means a lot to them. Now, if they're 70, 80, 90 years old, they look back at one of these buildings and they say, well, that's the Grig House. If they're in their 50s and 40s and so on, well, that's the Clifton Arms. Uh, and those bring back memories to those people that are really important. Uh, and on down into when it became Notes and Rickies and blah, blah, blah. And if you're not from London, you'll get the sense that all these places are bars. Uh, so that says something about our city, too. Um, but uh, the point is that young people that we deal with often feel unconnected to their community. So if the community can feel connected to where they're living because of your own reference points, that helps those young people feel connected to a community as well. Their connection is because it's historical, it's interesting, it's 12-foot ceilings, it's a 130-year-old floor. Those are interesting things, um, but really it's a special place. and It creates something special that, that without heritage you, you lose. And Alyssa? A lot of great points already. Um, just re reflecting on what everyone said so far just made me think about what I used to think heritage was and why, when I was younger, I didn't have any interest in heritage. I just thought it was about old, white, rich men. And as I've continued to work in this field, I've, I've realized how it can be about um, quiet voices, marginalized voices, about a connection to ways of life, and learning from those, reflecting on those about our, our present and about what our future will be also. Um, and working in Hamilton, I feel like, for me, I've learned the most what heritage is, is authenticity. And uh, interesting hearing Joe's talk and just also thinking about how, um, like you were saying, about the idea of the character of the area itself and the people. And is that something that should also be conserved? And thinking about the disconnect between conserving heritage buildings, people investing money in heritage buildings, but ultimately the displacement of people who have built in and lived in those buildings up until this point. So um, I, th I think my idea of what heritage is continues to evolve, but for the most part, it's, it's about that connection and an education of our past, my own understanding of that, and, and building empathy and understanding. So I want to try and get into uh, your individual origin stories, we'll call them. Uh, what was a moment or a project that uh, really helped define your, your work and your approach to heritage? Uh, what lessons did you take away from it, and how, how has it kind of defined uh, the way you approach things uh, down the line? Uh, well, more like your, the story of the, the brew pub is, is, is a good place to start, I think, if you, yeah? Um, so as you've already heard, we saw the building on doors open in 2014, um, and it struck us that not only was it a very unique building, but it was in a very unique location. Owen Sound doesn't have a lot of waterfront development at this point. So we approached the city as a partner because they own the building, um, and presented it to them as waterfront redevelopment, um, trying to capture Owen Sound um, as it is and can be, and move forward in a more positive and productive uh, um, direction than some of the other projects that had been proposed for that building. It had been abandoned for over 20 years, so until that point, it was in pretty big disrepair. There was a, a gentleman who was living there who had almost burnt it down once already. So 
it was important to us to preserve that building um, and move forward from there. Um, for me, I guess the project uh, that I'll talk a bit about is um, our first uh, restoration, which is a building that we now call the Cornerstone, uh, which was the Greek house and so on uh, in London. So it's uh, one of London's most prominent intersections, right, at Richmond and York, a gateway to the downtown. Uh, the building had, uh, on the main floor, uh, when we bought the building, had been vacant between one small section of it was occupied, I think, a couple years before we bought it, and some large sections of the building had been vacant for about uh, 25 years uh, and abandoned. Uh, in some areas, you couldn't walk on the floor because, well, the bars shut down, somebody forgot to turn the water off, uh, so uh, they weren't in great shape. Uh, but uh, they were occupied on the upper floors. The second and third floor, there was uh, people living in there, and we want to use the building for affordable housing. Our approach to this is we selected that building uh, because uh, it was the right scale for us. It was an important building to London, and it was the right location for youth. That was the, those were the primary drivers, of course. Is it going to meet the needs of the clientele? Uh, and the answer was yes. Uh, now, London would only, the average Londoner, like I said in my first comment, would really only care about the outside of the building. They don't really care, and they, or they do now. I don't want to write them off. But they wouldn't have cared at the time what goes on inside the building. And typically with affordable housing projects, they're tucked away, aren't they? There's a big fanfare when the ribbon's cut and the sod is turned and so on, and then these buildings exist in, elements, in areas of our city that typically the average citizen doesn't come into contact with unless you live in one of those buildings. Uh, and we want to change the discussion around that. We want to remind London and Londoners uh, that we have some affordable housing issues in our city, one of the ways that we could do that is by um, putting that program in one of our most prominent buildings. So we did that. Uh, we knew that uh, a lot of people would care about the outside and only the outside. We cared about it too, so we restored the outside to the original architectural plans. Uh, we pulled those out of Western University, and we could build the main floor back to the uh, big, open, beautiful windows that were there in the 1800s that are back in the, 18, back in the 2000s again. Um, and that worked well for us. We didn't do it for people. A learning for us was that when we were getting media coverage and when people were saying why that building and so on, every time we talked about the heritage nature of the building, we were criticized heavily. It's not up to you to save the heritage. That's other people's jobs. That's the city's job. That's uh, the, the historical group's jobs and whatever. That's not your job. Your job is to build affordable housing and build it cheaply. Uh, and uh, we balked at that significantly, as you might imagine, uh, because we wanted to build homes. Uh, we didn't want to build cheap apartments. We wanted to build homes. And we wanted to build a place that those young people could put roots down and feel connected to community. And you heard my earlier comments about heritage, and that's why. So we really dug into that building in a significant way, uh, right down to digging floors that were under three inches of concrete, uh, old terrazzo floors. Now they're cracked up and they're, uh, they're not in great shape, but they're a hundred and some odd years old. There's a beautiful mosaic tile floor in there that was buried under other floors. And right up to the day before our building opened to the public, uh, we were, they were doing some final cleaning on this beautiful mosaic floor, uh, porcelain floor. And the flooring company, after a year of working on this project, said, you know what, you people didn't know what you were doing on this project at all. Uh, I said, well, tell me, where did we mess up the day before we opened? He said, you know, you should have ripped this whole floor out. Um, you've got this crack here. You've got a patch of cement over here. Kyle, I'm looking at Kyle because you've seen the floor. It's beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. Uh, but it's got cracks in it because it's 140 years old or so. Uh, it's got some patches in it that somebody else did. Uh, and it looks 140 years old in some cases. It looks absolutely stunning. He said, I would have ripped it all out. You'd have marble throughout this entire floor, and it would have been beautiful. And I said, after a year of working on this project, you don't understand the project. That's what I'm learning right now. So thanks for all of your work, but we kind of think we did it well. I have to be honest here um, and admit something. Uh, nine years ago when I started, I actually didn't even really care to know what heritage actually meant. Uh, and because I was a wildlife biologist and, and, and involved in law enforcement. And then so I, I remember working with Saugan Ojibwe Nation as a, as a resource and infrastructure manager. My job is to look at existing projects or new projects. And 
I remember, I believe it was somebody from Timmins Martell on one project. Um, they came up to me and asked me, uh, can we do a heritage study? I'm like, what in the... I don't even know what that means. So she told me that, and it was an interesting story because I'm like, okay, now I get it. So you're looking at existing buildings that have maybe some type of significance. And we got into a really interesting conversation, and I said, there's an old school that used to place, take the place of a residential school. I don't know if I want to actually showcase that. So we talked about other things. I'm like, well, can we talk about a war that happened between you know, the three fires confederacy, the Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi, against the Iroquois nation? So our story began to evolve from there. And then over the course of the last nine years, I would realize that my point earlier about our history and our heritage actually being in the ground, the things that you can't see, uh, I learned a great deal over the last nine years that our heritage is actually still very much intact via archaeology. And so what that actually does, it's actually promoting, believe it or not, in growing up in Grand Bruce County, the, the his, history that I was taught for Indigenous peoples were the Métis West and the Mi'kmaq on the East Coast. Nothing about our own history. Nothing about our own culture, nothing about the infrastructure, nothing about the tools that we used. Uh, I only began appreciation for that when I started working for Saugeen Ojibwe Nation. And now I look at it as a landscape heritage approach, uh, something that you can't see. Uh, and some of our, our, our team, for you know, our archaeology team, they're equipped to tell the story as they're finding artifacts, which is very neat for me because that feeds my job and that feeds decisions for our leadership, but that's telling our story. And so, you know, the, the term of heritage is so interesting because this is a new concept for me where we're not looking at, you know, infrastructure that can be repurposed, but we're looking at life that still has a purpose. And that, you know, we're preserving that by, by sharing that story. Um, and again, maybe at some point I will talk a little bit about this one interesting project because we are looking at an area in Saugeen where there was an old church there, but that was it. Uh, present day, it looks quite a bit different. And there's, there's a tremendous amount of respect and definitely a lot of energy around completing this, this project that we're working on. So that's what heritage means to me. So I think uh, for me, really cutting my teeth and the project that defines the work that I do now is when I was first hired at the city of Hamilton a few years out of um, planning school and started as a technician working on our pilot for our built heritage inventory work, which is the work that uh, is my main portfolio now. And at the time, the my predecessors and my mentors um, had basically build the foundation of, of this pilot for us to be proactive in our identification of heritage buildings. Um, and this was coming out of changes to the Ontario Heritage Act a few years late, obviously budgets, municipalities. So it wasn't until 2011 this started on changes to the act were in 2005, 2006. Um, but it was to address the fact that we now had this tool. We had the register. We didn't just have the inventory. We didn't just have designation. Um, and like most municipalities, we had an existing inventory of thousands of properties that didn't have any heritage status, but it was really helpful for staff, for the city, for people to learn about the history of the area. And it was a question of what do we do with that? And um, our pilot was in downtown Hamilton. And for two years, I basically walked and photographed and surveyed and evaluated every single property in our downtown and I think in total it was almost 1,500 properties or addresses, lots of multiple buildings per property. Um, but it involved going through each one, and, and there's a lot of existing research, so you know there's a lot to work from, but I have gotten to know our downtown very intimately. Um, and just in terms of that process, too, thinking about... Uh, that was our pilot, so thinking about how we can do this in an efficient and effective way and use this tool and roll it out across the entire city. Um, so we went into a lot of detail in that first pilot, and we've learned from that since then. But uh, 
ultimately, in terms of the effectiveness of it, not only a broader understanding of the city itself for me as a staff member uh, and working with the heritage community on projects, but also we ended up adding um, over 75% of all the properties to our heritage register. Um, So we now are in a much better position to be able to be at the table when change is happening rather than being reactive uh, when buildings are being threatened. So that was our that was really my start at the city and a huge project to have started with. And we're now in our third phase. We're working in the Waterdown area in East Flamborough. And uh, it's continuing to be refined and evolved, but it's really um, impacted the work that I'm doing and where we're going as a city. Uh, Doran, you mentioned the amphitheater project, and uh, we're, we're moving on to the idea of how to balance uh, heritage um, with development. And uh, you had mentioned that it, these things don't have to be uh, mutually exclusive. So uh, I think, can you walk us through that amphitheater project and, and how that kind of strikes a balance? So I'm going to try and cover a lot of ground here very shortly. Um, so the amphitheater is located in Saugeen First Nation. Uh, the original church uh, structure and again, you can't see it, it's completely buried, but there's a pavilion around that. So that, uh, a bit of interesting history, that was the first church that was established in, in the Saugeen First Nation community. Uh, we fast forward to 1854, that's where the Treaty 72 was signed. So it's a big, big deal for us because now we're actually before the courts uh, fighting uh, that treaty. Uh, so, and then now I'm going to fast forward to, you know, a couple hundred years later, there's a now the the United Church that's there. So in the 70s, there was a minister there that did a lot of great work with the community. Uh, the community accepted him basically as a member. Uh, you know, he was well received. And one of his parting gifts before he left as a minister, he had he wanted to leave a legacy behind for the communities to to enjoy. So he built a very large amphitheater, uh, rock gardens, you name it, all sorts of stuff. Um, and a lot of a lot of community interest with that. I remember growing up as a kid. There's tons of beautiful gardens. It overlooks the Saugeen River. Uh, they they put up a large sign that said "Friendship." And anybody that goes onto the Saugeen First Nation website, you could see what it used to look like. Uh, beautiful rock gardens everywhere, um, ponds, and, and they're w- and wishing well. And I have to say, that's where I made a lot of my money as a kid. <laughs> So, <laughs> let's wait for somebody to drop some money. Okay, there's my chips. Um, so, unfortunately, the infrastructure was not, uh, I guess, it could have been done differently. And the integrity of the walls were beginning to fail. Uh, over the course of time, we had to shut parts of the, the, uh, you know, the amphitheater down because of uh, you know, human safety. Um, the idea was to basically rebuild like for like. Uh, and that was problematic because in another 30 years we would have been doing the same thing. I wasn't a part of how this actually came together, but I understand that there are essentially two individuals in North America that know how to do dry stone walling. Uh, that's, I believe, a European technique. I've seen that in a lot of movies in, in, in Scotland. And you, it's it, it's nothing short of amazing, and basically the, the, the work that... Uh, you know, has come from this. So rather than tearing the entire thing down um, and rather than doing something completely different, now we have a, a I'm going to say, 60% complete amphitheater using dry stone technology. So quite literally merging two different cultures to maintain one purpose, the, the, the purpose of a legacy. So we can tell our story about Treaty 72, what happened in the Saugeen River Valley and what this community actually means to its people. It's a natural attraction, and it's a beautiful site. Um, and what we have now are about 10 journeymen from our community uh, that now have a marketable skill set, and one that is only found, maybe there's now 12 people in, in North America that can actually do this. So the, uh, the result is, is nothing short of amazing. Um, we have an opportunity to rehabilitate and revitalize the legacy of Reverend Stotesbury and at the same time working with Ontario Heritage Trust to actually tell that story to all the visitors about what was so significant about the amphitheater. There's a lot of cultural value there. There's a lot of rich history. 
Um, it's actually quite interesting to stand. I, I'm one of the negotiators on the settlement for Treaty 72, and it's, it's quite humbling to stand in the footsteps of where my ancestors were 150, 200 years ago, signing a treaty that now, and, and you know, I have the privilege of working with. And so, tremendous opportunity, uh, merging you know, two cultures for one purpose, and, and that's to maintain a legacy. And uh, I'm very proud of that project, and, and I think everybody uh, next September, uh, by all means, come to see the regrained opening. So. And for everyone else, uh, talking about the balancing change and heritage, uh, because I think communities, they don't tend to stay in stasis, and uh, that's probably not desirable that they do. But uh, how do we kind of arrive at a happy medium and uh, avoid some of the, you know, people complain about uh, facadism in Toronto, you know, where we're just doing the bare minimum because it's a requirement. Uh, um, and sometimes it works really nicely, sometimes not so much. Um, but uh, for you and your work, how, how do you strike a happy medium? Um, so first, I, I would just say we do hear that a lot, that, that conservation and development are at odds, and it, I would start by saying that they aren't, <laughs> trying to dispel that idea. Um, you know, the conservation of existing buildings and adaptive reuse, heritage or not, is a form of redevelopment. It can be a form of intensification. It can help you meet growth targets. It can increase your tax base. All positive things. It's not at odds with the idea of, of growth. Um, but it's how it's done. And if it's done sympathetically and compatibly. I would say the biggest hurdle, just based on my experience and formerly working in our development planning section, um, is that not everyone knows how to do it and how to do it well. So it's scary. It's an unknown. It's a risk. Um, we do have a few local developers who have made um, you know, a market on doing this. They have done some fantastic adaptive reuse jobs, integrated old buildings with new, and it's a niche market, and they know how to do it and do it well, but it takes an effort, uh, imagination, and not every developer is interested in that. So it's how do we as a municipality facilitate more people doing that? Part of it is us proactively flagging properties of heritage interests so that we can be at the table and set that tone for what kind of change happens on them. Um, and the other part is trying to educate and guide how that work happens. Um, so part of that is the financial incentives that we offer, trying to make it as desirable as possible to adaptively reuse historic buildings, to actually, in some cases, have um, developers pushed to be designated to be eligible for those financial incentives. Um, but I would say the, the largest part is, is um, demystifying that idea of what heritage is so that people understand that we're not freezing buildings in time. Buildings continue to evolve, and especially with designated heritage properties, heritage permits, it is, it's a concession process. There's a reality that you, know, you need to meet code. Um, buildings are adaptively reused, and how do you minimize what that imp impact is through that process? Um, for us, on, on the three that we've done, I'd say there were some practical uh, uh, lessons learned in our experience now with, with three historical properties in London. Uh, one is, uh, for us as the customer, finding the right contractor uh, and uh, uh, a contractor that will work with you on your vision around this historical property. Uh, and I'd say that uh, we've had different experiences uh, on the projects and uh, uh, one where uh, they just weren't on the same page as us, although they're a very skilled contractor. Uh, and more recently, uh, our experience has been uh, much more proactive where they were coming to us on ways in which they can sensibly make use of uh, repurposing even materials within a building, uh, like an old wood floor that could not be salvaged, but the wood itself was replaned and became trim, for example, rather than buying MDF trim and so on, and it's a nice little story for the people that are in the building that even the flooring that couldn't have been saved is still in the building, as an example. As an end user of these buildings, uh, going back uh, to the point about uh, buildings do evolve in time and needs evolve in time, when we first uh, acquired this cornerstone building, 
its main entrance really was on the very corner of the building. So like many of these older buildings are, uh, there's a cutoff and then there was a vestibule and then you walked into what at the time was a bar and now is a wonderful cafe. But uh, we were actually had a lot of discussions with the city around closing that off. And, uh, and I know from a heritage point of view, it was an original opening, original entrance. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, uh, concern about closing that off. Our reality is that we're dealing with a lot of young people and young parents and so on that are coming and going with strollers, uh, as well as customers that might be in and out of uh, levels of accessibility, and a very busy street corner is right there. And we actually, since we've owned the building, our local buses have actually removed light standards two or three times, so that tells you how tight they take this corner. So uh, from a reality point of view, we really had to uh, negotiate quite actively uh, with the city around uh, removing that main entrance from a safety point of view, although it did compromise heritage. My point on that is doing work in a way that you can get people on board, but fundamentally it has to meet your needs. You're not trying to redevelop a museum. You're not trying to pretend the building is still from the 1800s or, or early 20th century. Uh, you're using something in the 21st century, so it, it has to uh, adapt to change. And finally, the other thing that I think that... Um, I'll, I'll pause after this, that I think we did really well, because we did not have a template that we could easily draw from. Uh, and so we actually did a lot of research. What other buildings and properties in and around might we learn from? So we actually did a trek down to Toronto uh, and interviewed the owner of the Flatiron Building uh, and uh, also interviewed uh, Margie's Idler and uh, toured through uh, the Gladstone uh, property uh, because of the property itself and also how they renewed the property without gentrifying the neighborhood, because that was also a concern with us. Um, and just last week, somebody toured through our building from another community, and she said, I don't know why, but this building reminds me of the Gladstone. And so I thought, well, that's amazing, because that was partly what we were looking for, that philosophy. So somehow that came through. And for you, Morag, uh, talking about uh, you know, balancing change and development, uh, in, in the story of the brew pub, the, that CPR station was kind of lying fallow, so your business has breathed new life into the place, but I, I wonder, uh, was anyone concerned, like, you can't put that there? Do you know, did, did you have to twist any arms or convince people to get on board? We were quite fortunate, um, for the most part, during our construction um, phase, most of the city was very supportive of uh, waterfront development and something actually going into that building. It actually wasn't until later on um, during the municipal elections that then people started looking at the money going, well, why would you spend that much on a private business? Why are you supporting them above others? So we did have a bit of community blowback against that. Um, and now it's all gone away since the municipal election, so I think it was probably just that. But, um, yeah, definitely being on the receiving end of that was an interesting experience. And for the most part, um, everything's gone well, but um, there is that perception of public money being used improperly in that sense but uh now i want to talk about how you uh kind of speaking of talking to stakeholders uh how you bring people on board and uh, how you reach these stakeholders i I think in sometimes stakeholders don't even know that they're stakeholders Uh, i remember canvassing for uh, an environmental organization and uh, i think our tagline on the street was uh do you have a second for a greener uh, toronto and uh, common responses is green enough so I wonder, how do you get people to care about heritage? If you say, you know, if someone's like, well, look, that's old. You know, uh, we got plenty of old buildings. We got, you know, um, and, and to tack on to that, how do you make sure you're, that you're reaching all these possible stakeholders? A couple of things that we did pretty pragmatically. One is uh, when we got into the tear out uh, of this uh, first uh, building that we did, the Cornerstone building, uh, we actually uh, did the removals before it became an active construction site. So the demolition was done. Before it became an active construction site, we had an open house. It took a few months to demolish what we needed to remove, uh, shore up the flooring so you could walk on it again and so on. Uh, and uh, we invited and we actually had the key constituents that we knew uh, were going to be part of this. So our public partners at the school boards, our community partners, because again, we're a not-for-profit providing services for youth, 
business partners, downtown neighbors, the city, uh, our, our funders, and so on. So we had about 200 people through. And uh, we divvied them up in groups of five. And, uh, and so we ensured that we could have a conversation. And we weren't selling them. We wanted them to react, but we also wanted them to contribute ideas because we really, really wanted this building to be owned by the community. Although this building is our flagship operation, if you were to go by the building still now, you would not see our name on the building. And our, that's not because we didn't get around to it. That was very intentional. Our point being that we wanted this building to feel like, we want the community to feel like they own it, like they might feel like they own the library. Who actually owns that building? I don't know. Uh, or London's, um, uh, you know, Bud Gardens uh, in London. Londoners talk about that like it's our community building, uh, but it's actually owned by a, a company that's based in uh, Philadelphia, Philadelphia, if I remember right, or managed by them. So a lot of money is leaving London that's in that building. We don't think about that. We think about it as London's building. And that's the approach that we took to this building. So even the naming of the building, the cornerstone, uh, that was the contest that we ran through our local newspaper uh, and invited submissions, had an external panel that was not comprised of Youth Opportunities and Limited representatives, uh, and they actually selected the name of the building as well. So things like that really ensured that the community felt like they owned it. The cafe that's there, it needed a customer base because we're going to train youth to work in a cafe. We need customers to sell the food to. Uh, and so we really needed that community input. So we looked for all these ways in which, at the end of the day, people walk away and they feel like they own the building. So with, um, with our inventory work, uh, a large part of our process and why it takes a bit of time is that community engagement is a key component of it. So we go out to the community that we're working in and engage with, engage with them early in the process to say what we're hoping to do, to sort of start building that community buy-in, but also to get an unbiased perspective of what they think about the community. What do they value? What's of interest? But later in the process, when we engage, once we've done our research, talked to local uh, historians, people, um, and actually screened properties and then have this list of ones we're recommending for the register is we go back out and talk about those recommendations. And that's where people are really interested. That's where it's not just the normal crowd of people you would normally see because you're dealing with with their properties. Um, And those are the most rewarding but also can be the most controversial conversations that you have because it's it's their livelihood. Um, And there's a lot of misconception and concern around what heritage is. So that's why a large part of our inventory process is trying to be as transparent and open as possible through that process and educate about what we're trying to accomplish, what it actually means to be listed on the register. And most of the time, especially with private property owners, not necessarily you know commercial property owners or developers, but um, people's homes, once they understand what it actually means and, and what we're trying to do... Um, they're not concerned anymore. <laughs> there are still people that you know might be in opposition, but the fact that we're being honest with them and walking through that process, um, they generally have a level of confidence in what we're doing by the time we go to council for recommendations. Um, and when there is some some dissidence, where you know there's a disconnect in what we're we're trying to do and what they're saying, I try to find that common ground of you know why did you buy your home in the first place. There's something you must have really loved about it. It's the character. Oh, you love the character. And I love the neighborhood. I love the homes in the area that we live in. So what's the disconnect? We're talking about at least flagging and aiming to conserve the character of your neighborhood. So what is the opposition? So a lot of the times it's trying to find that middle ground to a reasonable point of compromise. As um, a business in a heritage building, we wanted to engage people with the heritage as much as possible, not just with the rail heritage, which my mother did an excellent job of searching every auction and thrift store for CP memorabilia, Um, so we do have quite the collection, but also because of the prohibition history of Owen Sound, we have two separate spaces in the station, and we were able to use the bar area to highlight that as well, which engages the younger crowd a bit more than the CP heritage does. Um, So that was really important for us, and I think it was a really good way to engage our community more in what we were trying to do. I just want to add a little bit to 
another project that we worked on. And historically, it's been controversial. It was a dam project that had needed to be refurbished. And um, how we got the community support on a very controversial issue um, is we actually went to the communities and we said, what do you know about this project? So that triggered a land use and occupancy study. Uh, we had a very poor turnout when we wanted to talk about the refurb initially, originally. Um, there was a lot of minds out there that said, let's just remove the dam. If it's failing, then just let, let it you know, water and take its course. There's a lot of value to that. But there was a whole other bunch of reasons that we would have gotten to a lot of arguments for many years that we were already engaged in. So we put the onus back on the communities. We asked them, what do you know about this dam? And why was it important for you as a kid? And that triggered what we called a land use and occupancy study. From two people at our initial meeting to the final project, by that time we had interviewed 15 members from our community. And they, I think we had over, I think it was 2,300 data points on the knowledge, where they fished, what they fished. You know, maybe there's a trail. Maybe somebody got married there. Or maybe somebody knows about a really significant rock. All that information was taken, and then we did the flip on them, and then the communities, all of a sudden, they felt like they owned the project. And all of their knowledge and all their stories went into the final design of that project. And by the end, when we had our final community member uh, community meeting, we had well over 200 people attend. They were also trying to tell their story. And so we made all of that public and we made it open. So that was another way that we basically said, okay, we'll take a heritage infrastructure like this, put the community members to, to own that and tell their story and why it's important. And uh, the project went very well. Um, and finally, I'm going to go. Uh, I'm going to go down the line and just talk about the possibilities looking into the future, the future of heritage. Um, you know, what are, what can we do? What what haven't we been doing? What's your wish list? What do you want to see? Um, I, I'll admit, I didn't expect to, to see so many people without white hair in this crowd, and that is. That's what I want to continue seeing in heritage. Um, I think it's important that people my age and younger are starting to drive this process and are starting to care about it, um, particularly in a place like Owen Sound that is an older population. Um, there are other people, um, new entrepreneurs to the area, who I know are looking at heritage buildings, and I think that's great as well. So, yeah, more youth involved. Being one of the white-haired guys, I'd uh, actually say, yeah, she's right. Uh, but, uh, but I do think that I think that uh, um, those of us that are longer-term Londoners, I'm so glad we rarely talk now about, remember when Simpsons and Eaton's and the King's Mills were all downtown, and downtown was lo well, lovely back then. Those days are gone, right? They're gone, gone, gone. Uh, and so how do we embrace a new interaction with our built heritage? And, uh, and not treat it like a whole bunch of mini-museums uh, on a few blocks of land, but how do we actually embrace new use, which might make them look differently, um, honor that heritage, honor the history of our community, and to point not all that history is a built history too, which I think is a really important point to these conversations, but how do we honor that without thinking we have to protect what's there just for the sake of protecting what's there? Because if we do that, we don't embrace youth. We're really embracing our own memory of something that's gone. And we have to find a way to create, let these buildings and let this built infrastructure find new life, not pretend its old life is still around because it's gone. And I think that that's the future heritage. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rise up a little bit higher, a little bit more macro. I think the future of heritage is figuring out how heritage conservation fits into the fight against climate change and really positioning ourselves in that argument, similar to the development versus conservation. It's not, it's not an opposition. Heritage conservation and sustainability are not an opposition. 
um, especially older buildings in terms of how they were built to not require HVAC systems, to have passive solar heating and airflow, um, and the embodied energy in our buildings that are already there, rather than demolishing existing structures to build some new sustainable building. In some cases, yes, that makes sense. But I think it's trying to figure out how our broader strategy for heritage conservation aligns with the goals of addressing climate change and making sure that we aren't late to that game before, before we're pushed out of it. That's going to do it for us, everybody. Uh, please put your hands together if you enjoyed this show. Uh, give it up for the panel. And that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. We'd like to thank our partners on this live episode. The Ontario Heritage Trust is an agency of the Government of Ontario that cares for, commemorates, and shares Ontario's rich and diverse heritage, cultural and natural, tangible and intangible. It works with communities and partners across the province to share and celebrate the diversity of place, experience, language, customs, and perspectives of our province. And they put on the show you just heard. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or you can email me at glynbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. In the meantime, Happy New Year, Neil. Well, uh, Happy New Year, good. Cheers. <laughs>